70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of Global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Bonjour, je m'appelle Aram Kim. Je travaille en tant qu'interprète traductrice et vis actuellement entre Paris et Séoul. Hi, my name is Aram Kim, and I'm an interpreter working in Seoul and Paris. My ties with KBS World Radio date back to 2005. Back then, I was living in France and always felt homesick and thirsty for content from Korea. That is why I started to tune in to KBS World Radio, to catch up with the news from home and learn about various areas of the society I wasn't familiar with. It also helped me see Korea from a more objective perspective and better understand the cultural differences between Korea and France. Aussi, c'était très intéressant de découvrir les différentes façons de penser entre les Français et les Coréens sur certains sujets. 70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Hello, it's Tuesday the 31st of January and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. The defense chiefs of South Korea and the U.S. met in Seoul where they reaffirmed Washington's extended deterrence measures and agreed to expand joint military exercises. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. Officials from South Korea and Japan met to discuss the compensation issue for Korean victims of Japanese wartime forced labor, but no significant headway was made. We discuss where this leaves Seoul-Tokyo relations for our in-depth today. And coming up, we meet the young founder of an up-and-coming music producing and publishing company here in Korea. That's for Touch Base in Seoul. We have all that and more coming up on today's Korea 24. The defense chiefs of South Korea and the U.S. met and held talks on Tuesday. Among other things, the duo reaffirmed Washington's extended deterrence measures for Seoul and agreed to expand joint military training and exercises this year. For more on this story and our other headlines from today, I'm joined in the studio by KBS World Radio news editor Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. Hello there, jang So the meeting between the top defense officials comes at a time of uh, heightened inter-Korean tensions with more provocations expected from Pyongyang. Can you tell us uh, some of the outcomes that came out from this session? Sure, Jango. Uh, South Korea's Defense Minister Lee Jong-sub and U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin held talks in Seoul on Tuesday, and together they strongly condemned North Korea's continued provocations, including missile launches and drone intrusions, as well as for violating UNSC resolutions. They agreed to sternly respond to such acts with the international community. Ian Austin also agreed to continue and step up alliance capabilities, info-sharing, joint planning, execution, and consultation to deter Pyongyang's missile and nuclear threats. A part of related efforts will include a tabletop exercise next month led by the Deterrence Strategy Committee and discussing a timely and coordinated deployment of strategic assets. The two sides also agreed to expand the scale and scope of joint field maneuvers to include a major live-fire drill. There are also plans for a trilateral security talks with Japan. 
Yes, it's a busy week for our government officials here in South Korea, the top diplomats of South Korea, and the US will hold talks as well on Friday in Washington. Can you preview that for us? Well, according to ministry spokesperson Im Su-suk, on Tuesday, Minister Park Jin will meet U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken on February 3rd. The minister is embarking on a four-day trip to New York and Washington from Wednesday. To mark the 70th anniversary of bilateral alliance, they will discuss ways to strengthen the comprehensive strategic alliance and also coordinate policy measures on North Korea. North Korea is reportedly the top priority in South Korea-U.S. cooperation. Seoul seeks to bolster that cooperation through various efforts, including drawing support for Seoul's Indo-Pacific strategy unveiled last year. And New York Park will attend a meeting with ambassadors of UNSC member countries to seek support in responding sternly to North Korea's provocations. And also, uh, there's also plans to meet UN Chief Antonio Guterres to discuss Korean Peninsula and global affairs. Meanwhile, the Voice of America has reported that North Korea may have conducted a solid fuel rocket engine test in the last two days. So what do we know? So citing commercial satellite imagery released by the Middlebury Institute of International Studies on Tuesday, VOA reported such signs have been detected at the Magunpo rocket engine test facility in North Hamgyong province. Comparing images from Sunday and Monday, VOA said a field beside the facility's test pad was seemingly blackened from Monday morning over an area stretching 120 meters, suggesting a burst of strong flames. David Schmerler, a senior research associate at the Institute James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies, suggested the test was likely for a missile program since solid fuel engines had not been used in the regime's satellite development yet. But it did point out the possibility of a rocket propellant development for satellites as well as solid fuel technology can be applied in both satellite and ballistic missile launches. Let's continue on now to some economic data that was released. South Korea witnessed an on-year increase in production, consumption and investment last year. But the overall outlook for this year is rather grim due to factors like slowing exports, weakened domestic recovery, inflation and high interest rates. So, Daniel, can you tell us more? Yeah, first, let's with, uh, start with the uh, numbers by Statistics Korea released on Tuesday. The nation's industrial output last year rose 3.3% on-year on the back of an on-year jump of 4.9% in 2021. Production in mining and manufacturing expanded 1.4%. The service sector, 4.8%. Retail sales increased 0.2% on-year. Facility investment by 3.3%. Production, consumption and investment all rose for the second consecutive year. But the most recent monthly data suggests otherwise. Industrial output last month fell 1.6% on-year, the biggest margin in 32 months. Facility investment dropped 7.1%. The government pledged to execute projects worth 340 trillion won in H1 as a supplementary measure. Meanwhile, the IMF forecasts the South Korean economy will grow 1.7% this year, down 0.3 percentage points from its previous outlook. Meanwhile, prosecutors are questioning former National Security Advisor Chung Yong as part of their probe into suspicions that the previous government forcibly repatriated two North Korean fishermen in 2019. Can you tell us more? On Tuesday morning, Chung arrived at the Seoul Central District Prosecutor's Office for questioning. As one of the top security officials of the Moon Jae-in government, Chung is suspected of making the final decision to send the two fishermen back to North Korea against their will before the National Intelligence Service concluded its probe into the matter. The sailors were captured by the South's military in waters near the NLL in the East Sea on November 2, 2019. 
The Moon administration decided to repatriate the fishermen five days later after assessing they were not eligible for protection. They were suspected of killing over a dozen fellow crew members before crossing the border. Last July, a civic group filed a complaint against Chiang and former NIS chief Sohun, accusing them of abusing their authority in the process of repatriating the North Koreans. Prosecutors have previously questioned Saw and Saw on the case, rather, as well as former presidential chief of staff Ngo Yang-min and former unification minister Kim Yeon-chul. And finally, senior foreign ministry officials of South Korea and Japan held a meeting to discuss the compensation issue for victims of Japan's wartime forced labor, but failed to reach any meaningful agreements. Can you walk us through what happened? Well, during Monday's session, Samin Jung, the Director General for Asia and Pacific Affairs at South Korea's Foreign Ministry, held talks with her Japanese counterpart, Takehiro Funakoshi. The talks lasted three hours. So told reporters extensive discussions were held on various issues, but it was hard to say that any conclusions were reached. Uh, differences remain between the two sides on key issues, and then additional discussions are needed, according to So. The Director General said they agreed to continue close bilateral communication at various levels, including those among high-level officials. The meeting came after South Korea formally floated the idea of using a public foundation based in Korea to pay the compensation for Korean victims who had won losses against two Japanese firms. The proposal, of course, drew criticism from the victims. We'll talk more about the outcomes from this meeting next for our in-depth, but first we wrap up our news briefing here. Daniel, thank you for those updates. Thank you for having me. Senior foreign ministry officials of South Korea and Japan held a meeting on Monday to discuss the compensation issue for victims of Japan's wartime forced labor. This was the third director general level meeting in some 40 days. The meeting lasted for about three hours, but while the two sides agreed to continue communicating on various levels, they failed to narrow differences in key areas. To get some expert thoughts on the latest developments concerning whole Tokyo relations, we're joined on the line now by Dr. Bong Young-sik from the Yonsei Institute for North Korean Studies. Dr. Bong, welcome back to the show. You're very welcome. Before we talk about the meeting itself, I'd like to first get your thoughts on uh, the South Korean government's proposal recently made during a public hearing earlier this month. Uh, Seoul's foreign ministry proposed using a Korean public foundation to pay the compensation for Korean victims of wartime forced labor who had won related lawsuits against two Japanese firms, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries and Nippon Steel. The proposal, however, drew criticism from the victims as it did not include an apology by the Japanese firms or require their participation in the compensation. Dr. Bong, what's your take on the ministry's proposal? Well, the minister's proposal uh, is the only viable option available uh, for South Korea and the Japanese government for any possible resolution of the current situation uh, because uh, the idea has been around since the, the Park Geun-hye administration uh, because uh, there was a looming uh, possibility that the Supreme Court of South Korea would be uh, rule in favor of the uh, plaintiff against the other uh, defendant, the Japanese corporations, for financial compensations for the forced labor during the colonial period. The idea was originally dubbed as a two plus two formula uh, that uh, both governments, uh, in terms of the public 
um, you know, funding. And the cooperations of the two countries, especially the South Korean cooperation like the Pohang Steel, uh, one of the major beneficiaries of the you know, loans and grants provided by the 1965 Normalization Treaty with Japan, and the Japanese corporation, the defendants, um, you know, donating money to set up the foundation uh, so that uh, in exercise of the right to indemnity, uh, without, uh, you know, demanding the Japanese corporations or the Japanese government to, you know, provide the financial compensations for the victims, mm. the victims would receive the financial compensation. So idea has been uh, with us for uh, many years, but the execution of it still remains politically very sensitive. Uh, politically sensitive, but also uh, is not accepted by the victims themselves. Uh, can an effective agreement be made without having the victims on board? Well, it's a conflict of uh, two uh, principles in international law. The South Korean government and the court's position is that uh, the victim sufferings uh, should be, you know, compensated in the light of the, you know, uh, exercise of justice and fairness for the victims, um, uh, for the because they are victims of the crimes against basic humanity by the colonial ruling and the uh, violence committed by the imperial Japan in the past. On the other end, the Japanese government and the corporation position is that it is the exercise of the retroactive you know, application of the contemporary international law. And the uh, by signing the 1965 uh, Basic Treaty, uh, the compensations for the individual victims uh, became the responsibility of the South Korean government. And uh, if you look at the, uh, the, you know, content of the negotiations by the both governments for the signing of the treaty in 1965, it was not the Japanese government, but the Korean government uh, that insisted that the uh, individual compensation would be left to be handled by the South Korean government. So the key point he, here is how to uh, have come up with a mutually acceptable interpretation or reinterpretation of the 1965 agreement. Well, in their continuing efforts to find some sort of resolution, on Monday, Sam In-jung, the Director General for Asia and Pacific Affairs at South Korea's Foreign Ministry, and her Japanese counterpart, Takehiro Funakoshi, met in Seoul to discuss the issue of compensating wartime forced labour victims. The two sides, however, did not see eye to eye on core issues, but they did agree to continue discussions. Uh, what's your overall assessment of Monday's talks, Dr. Bong? Well, when you look at the, uh, the lack of uh, uh, visible progress coming out of the Monday meeting between the two sides, uh, you uh, can feel uh, how deep a mutual trust, distrust, especially a distrust of South Korea on the part of the Japanese government must be. Um, if you recall the 2015 joint declaration by the two foreign ministers of South Korea and Japan, uh, that uh, uh, critical issues, including the uh, you know, comfort women issue uh, between the country, um, you know, is, is supposed to be settled, quote, finally and irreversibly, end quote. Uh, the insertion of the, such a particular phrase in the joint declaration uh, shows uh, how deep the distrust of the Japanese side of South Korean government or mm. governments to abide by any major agreements. 
related to the settlement of the historical issues. And the 2015 Joint Declaration was actually reversed uh, with the inauguration of Moon Jae-in government of South Korea. Uh, so from the standpoint of Japanese side, there must be absolute guarantee that any major agreement forged between the two governments from this time on will not be reversed. There shouldn't be any excuse mm. in the context of domestic politics of South Korea, whether there will be a change of the presence or more. Japan side wants the guarantee. So it is up to the South Korean government to decide how to provide the financial compensation to the Korean victims. But there should be guarantee that not a single yen uh, should be demanded by South Korean side in the future to be paid uh, by the Japanese corporations or the Japanese government. Right, so the, the main sticking point then is for Japan is to uh, have some sort of guarantee. Uh, but what are, what's the roadblock to that? Uh, why so, can South Korea not uh, uh, provide that? Well, the roadblock uh, is twofold. One is that the South Korean government uh, has been uh, requesting the Japanese government to provide heartfelt apology and uh, accept the, uh, the responsibility for the you know, uh, violence and pains uh, incurred to the victims. And the Japanese government you know, has insisted that uh, the Japan as a country and the previous Japanese governments have already issued heartfelt apologies as well as uh, you know, official compensations, including the... Uh, the financial compensation made by the 2015 Joint Declaration. The other roadblock is about the, uh, you know, giving up the right to indemnity uh, by the South Korean, you know, government and the victims. If there will be right to indemnity uh, still uh, available, then um, nobody can guarantee that in the future, uh, depending upon different political circumstances. South Korean government may uh, ask the Japanese government and corporations to, you know, uh, donate or uh, make any financial compensations uh, to South Korean government, who is going to provide the financial compensation for the victims at this point. Then uh, nothing uh, major uh, will be changed in the eyes of the Japanese corporations as a defendant, because they will uh, continue to assume the liability to possibly uh, provide a financial compensation in accordance with the uh, South Korea Supreme Court decision. What do you make of criticism that perhaps uh, Tokyo needs to make uh, some sort of gesture as well, that at the moment uh, Tokyo is the one who's demanding, who's making the demands, uh, but uh, also at the same time uh, this is a historical issue that uh, Japan uh, should take responsibility for as well? Well, if I may just uh, give you my own interpretation of the Japanese position, then Japan has provided numerous heartfelt and official apologies, as well as compensations uh, in line with their demands uh, from the Korean government and the victims. So there's nothing left uh, for the Japanese side uh, to do, um, you know, in, as, in response to the South Korean government's request for the Japanese government doing more in the light of the future-looking you know, bilateral partnership. The ball is uh, in the court of South Korea, not in the Japanese side. Mm. So if there will be any forward-looking or the you know, big you know, gesture to be made, 
it must be a South Korean government. Is there anything more do you think the South Korean government can do to persuade the victims uh, in this situation as well? Uh, do you see a way that South Korea can persuade both the victims and uh, negotiate details with Japan? Well, there is a thing that diplomacy is an area that uh, uh, what appears to be impossible uh, will be made possible. And the diplomatic negotiation is the only viable you know, option for both sides. And uh, if uh, Kishida administration of Japan is not going to take this golden opportunity for saving uh, the bilateral partnership between the two countries, which has been greatly strained for the past uh, 15 years plus, then uh, Kishida administration uh, may not, uh, uh, you know, uh, going to have uh, you know, another Korean uh, government who is very uh, aggressive uh, to, you know, improving the bilateral, bilateral tie with Japan. So there is a potential loss mm. uh, for the Japanese government for taking hardline policy for good. And according to the Article 3 of the 1965 uh, Normalization Treaty between the countries, um, any dispute shall be settled, first of all, through diplomatic channels. If the diplomatic channels will uh, fail, then both sides should uh, appoint a third-party arbiter or the uh, tripartite uh, uh, arbitration committee, which is not politically viable to either side. Mm. So uh, failing to come up with the uh, satisfactory uh, settlement for both the defendants and the plaintiff is uh, critically important for both sides, uh, not, not just the uh, Yoon Suk-yeol government of South Korea, but also the Kishida administration. There are perhaps signs that the Kishida administration is warming to the Yoon administration's efforts. Uh, according to the Sankei Shimbun newspaper in Japan, Tokyo is reviewing easing the export curbs that they imposed on South Korea in 2019 in protest of Korean court rulings on the wartime forced labor compensation issue. Quoting multiple sources, the newspaper reported that the Tokyo government is considering the request by the Yoon Suk-yeol administration that South Korea be reinstated on Japan's trade whitelist. Uh, the newspaper said the decision, though, will be made after carefully observing progress in resolving the forced labor issue. What do you make of this report? Well, we have, you have, we have to be really careful in reading uh, such a report by Sankei Shimon. Uh, there uh, will be definitely some kind of quid pro quo uh, for South Korean government uh, providing the uh, financial compensations for the victims through the public foundation uh, instead of the Japanese corporations as uh, defendants. Uh, and the Japanese side rescinding those export restrictions on three key materials using chip and display uh, manufacturing and, uh, um, you know, bringing back South Korea uh, to the whitelist. But it is a quid pro quo uh, premised upon the condition that the settlement should be acceptable to the Japanese government and the corporations. So uh, without the settlement being satisfactory to the Japanese government, the Japanese corporation, there will not be settlement at all. And without settlement, uh, those uh, um, you know, measures uh, by the Japanese government um, rescinding the uh, export restrictions or the, you know, bringing back South Korean uh, corporations uh, back to the white list will not going to take place. Mm. And finally, there's also been speculation that President Yoon Suk-yeol could uh, pay a visit to Japan 
for a summit with the Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. But latest reports suggest that it is unlikely to happen, not before March anyway, and that a solution to the forced labour compensation issue would need to be reached before such a meeting. What do you make of uh, such reports and what message do you think it sends if they don't meet? Well, uh, you know, a bureau chief, uh, Ta, who uh, was in the meeting on Monday with the Japanese counterpart, alluded that uh, because of the many roadblocks still existing between the two sides, uh, there might be, you know, a necessary intervention of the, uh, the top uh, leaderships uh, to help eliminate the, the um, existing obstacles for any possible settlement of the issue. Um, you know, considering that statement, then I think the both sides are still uh, very much far apart in terms of, uh, you know, uh, narrowing down their differences on the actual settlement formula. But uh, if uh, President Yoon Suk-yeol of South Korea is going to, you know, make an official visit to Japan, but uh, coming back to uh, the country without making any specific deal that is satisfactory to South Korean constituents and the political parties. It will be tantamount to political suicide to the president of South Korea. So it is likely that he's not going to rush into having a summit meeting with Prime Minister Kishida uh, without uh, some kind of a guarantee that uh, the summit meeting between the two leaders will definitely generate uh, visible political outcomes. We'll leave it there, Dr. Bong. We've been speaking to Dr. Pong Young-shik from the Yonsei Institute for North Korean Studies. Thank you once again for your analysis. You're welcome. Welcome to the Korea24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index fell 25.39 points or 1.04% on Tuesday to close the day at 2,425.08. The tech-heavy cost stack rose, however, gaining 1.87 points, or 0.25%, to close the day at 740.49. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 4.51 against the dollar, closing the day at 1,231.91. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We continue on now to Korea Trending, our daily segment where we take a look at some of the other news headlines that have been trending online in Korea today. And for that, we have Diane Yu joining us in the studio. Diane, hello. It is good to see you again. Hello, John. It's good to see you again. Okay, so what topics do you have for us today? Well, today we'll go over a message from a sanitation worker about people recklessly throwing away sex dolls. Next, we'll find out which place has become the first in Europe to declare International Kimchi Day. Last but not least, we'll find out which South Korean actor just got married and is expecting a baby. Okay, well, that first story certainly got my attention. Can you mm-hmm. tell us more? So I'm not sure if our listeners know, but the Korea Customs Service started allowing the import of full-body sex dolls last December. They're so realistic that they can sometimes mislead people into thinking that they're real human beings. Mm. Recently, a sanitation worker's message about these dolls has made waves online. On Tuesday, a story with the title, Please Consider These When You're Planning to Buy a Sex Doll, was posted online. The writer said that as a street cleaner, they always prepare for whatever might come out of a box when doing the job, as sometimes living creatures like cats and dogs can be found. But one time, something unexpected was found. 
Right, and judging from the title of the post, I presume that it was not a cat or a dog. You are correct. The writer went on to say that their hearts sank when they found an abandoned doll, as at first they thought it was a murdered woman. Mm. The writer said, I saw hair, so I thought it was a wig and pulled it out. But you don't know how surprised I was when a decapitated head came out. The arms and legs of the doll were wrapped in newspaper and thrown away separately. The poster pleaded uh, with potential buyers of those dolls to think about how to dispose of them before buying one, because in the writer's words, it would be scary to cut in, cut them into pieces and also embarrassing to throw it away in a plastic bag. Right. I can't imagine that the uh, sanitation worker, the fright he must have gotten right. when finding that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess, I mean, we shouldn't laugh, but it is quite a surreal situation. Yeah. Uh, is this a isolated incident or is this something possibly more common than we'd think? There are often cases where dolls are mistaken as female corpses. In May of last year, a man who visited a reservoir in Konjiam, Gyeonggi province, found a doll lying on the ground covered in thickets and said he was surprised as he thought it was someone else's remains. The man said no matter who saw it, it looked like a corpse that had decomposed into a skeleton. Similar incidents happened in other countries as well. In August of last year in Bangkok, Thailand, the police were dispatched after a report was made about a naked woman on a beach, which was found to be another one of these dolls. So because it's so realistic, people should really be careful when throwing it away. It would not be a fun experience to find a human-like body lying in random places. Indeed, especially if it's found by children as well. Right. Uh, But I do also wonder what is the correct or best way to dispose of such items Uh, because it's not like something you'd want to tell the sanitation worker that you're throwing away. That's also true. Uh, Perhaps those who sell the items might also offer a service to discard them as well. That's possibly a business opportunity, I guess. But uh, Anyway, let's move on. Okay, (laughs) Uh, What's our second story for today? So Hanryu, or the Korean wave, is sweeping all over the world, it seems. But you can't leave out the traditional side dish kimchi when talking about South Korea. A borough in southwest London, England, has become the first place in Europe to designate Kimchi Day as a legal holiday. The Royal Borough of Kingston-upon-Thames announced on the 30th local time that it will designate November 22nd as Kimchi Day every year. New Malden Village, which is located in the borough, has the largest Korean community in Europe. Yes, and that is, in fact, where I'm from, Diane. Born and raised in New Malden. (laughs) Yes. Wow, well, this is an unexpected delight. Right. Uh, But if there's anywhere in the UK that would designate Kimchi Day, it would, of course, be New Malden and the borough Uh of Kingston. Right. Uh, Can you walk us through what was said in the announcement? Sure. Uh, Kingston Council said that following Korea and the United States, Kingston will be a leader in celebrating the holiday every year for the first time in Europe. The announcement introduced what the side dish is, saying that kimchi, pickled fermented vegetables, is the national dish for Korea. In 2013, UNESCO recognized kimjang, the process of preparing kimchi, as part of Korea's intangible cultural heritage. As for the reason why the holiday falls on November 22nd, that's because kimchi is often made in November. November ahead of the winter season. The leader of Kingston Council, Andreas Kirch, welcomed the news saying that this is particularly significant for them as this year marks the celebration of 140 years of diplomatic relations between Korea and the UK. Yes, we have previously talked on the show about states and municipalities in the US recognizing Kimchi Day. Mm-hmm. So it seems like a 
it's making its way to countries around the world now. Right. The Korean government designated November 22nd as Kimchi Day back in 2020 to promote kimchi industry and inherit its culture. Uh, in the U.S., seven states, including California, Virginia, and New York, celebrate Kimchi Day every year. The state of New Jersey is currently pursuing to designate the day as well. The spicy side dish that South Koreans cannot live without is being recognized in different continents, and hopefully Kingston's designation will pave the way for different regions in Europe to follow suit. Indeed. Well, it was a nice talk about home on this show. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's get to our final trending story now, and it was some surprise news from the entertainment world. Can you tell us more? Right. The South Korean actor Song Joong-gi has announced that he is married and is also an expecting father. The 37-year-old shared the news on his online fan community on Monday. The official announcement comes about a month about after his agency, Hygium Studio, confirmed that he is in a relationship with a British woman but did not reveal her identity at the time. It was later found that her name is Katie Lewis Saunders. Also on Monday, an official from Song's agency told news outlets that the actor and Katie are planning to hold a wedding ceremony, but the date is undecided at the moment. Yes, I expect fans to be suffering from a bit of whiplash as it's all happened so fast. Uh, What did he say to his fans exactly? Can you tell us more about it? So in the post to his fans, Song wrote... Today, we just came back from registering our marriage to start our life as a couple based on deep trust and love. The actor said that he vowed to spend the rest of his life with Katie, who has been by his side supporting him and sharing precious memories. And as for sharing news about her pregnancy, Song added that, Naturally, we hoped for the dream of creating a happy family together. We've put in a lot of effort to keep our promises to each other, and thankfully, a precious life came to us. Yes, it's happened quite suddenly, but uh, there had been rumours, though, hadn't there, about the two getting married, as well as Katie's pregnancy since uh, the couple's relationship was announced last month. That's right. At the time, a video of the two arriving at Incheon International Airport surfaced online, resulting in rumours of Katie's pregnancy. In the video, she was wearing a loose-fitting top, and she covered her belly with her hand as she was walking. A large diamond ring was also spotted on the fourth finger of her right hand, suggesting that their marriage was imminent. Despite the speculation, Song Joong-gi remained silent, and his company neither confirmed nor denied, saying it's difficult to confirm. However, on January 30th, after 35 days of silence, Song made their marriage official and admitted that everything was true. Well, I guess there's uh, nothing more to say than congratulations to the couple yes, of on course. the marriage and the baby and mm-hmm. wish them all a happy life together. Right. That's where we're wrapping up for today's Career Trending. Thank you for those stories and we'll see you next time. See you next time. This week's guest for Touch Basin's Hole is Michelle Cho, the founder of the music producing and publishing company Singing Beetle. Uh, Michelle began her career at SM Entertainment doing A&R, but expanded her role to writing and producing music. I'm delighted to say that she has stopped by the studio today to tell us more about her story and her path to music and more. Ms Cho, hello and welcome to the show today. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's a delight to have you with us. Uh, you have a fascinating story, but let's uh, perhaps start from the start. Growing up, were you always interested in music, especially K-pop? Um, I would say as a kid, um, and I'm pretty sure the time that I, time when I was a kid, uh, it was a time when everybody 
was interested in K-pop. <laughs> of course, before we didn't have the label K-pop, but I was also very fascinated by the singers of the time, such as H.O.T., uh, Finkel, Jexkiss, G.O.D., all these uh, bands. I also remember as I was just walking into the studio that I came to KBS several times when I was a kid to watch Music Bank. <laughs> so yes, I was always interested in music, always interested in K-pop. Uh, my mom also... Um, got me some singing lessons, piano lessons, and flute lessons. I was always interested in learning new instruments. Uh, so yeah, I would say I did spend my childhood with a lot of music in it. Sure. So you were a fan, but then when did you decide that you'd do this, uh, try to explore this professional world of music? Because uh, I understand that in college here in Korea University, you majored in international relations, and then. Uh, you earned a master's degree in international education policy from Harvard as well. But then how did you make that transition? Um, I would say I always wanted to try music, but I wasn't brave enough mm. because I felt like music is a path where you not only need to have your talent, but also other factors like timing, luck, the network, all the things I felt like I didn't have control over had so much influence over the success of your career. So I would say I thought, I think I took a safe route, a safer path, mm. uh, which was studying a little bit. And of course, I'm still very much passionate about um, education and international relations. And I don't think they are all separable from K-pop because sure. they are in mm. a way all correlated. So the, um, the career change that happened was when I was doing my master's degree. Mm. Uh, I was thinking over my life choices and what I want to do in the future. And I came across a TV show uh, where young kids were competing for, to be K-pop stars. It was an audition show. And that was the time when a lot of audition shows were taking place in different uh, broadcasting stations. And I saw... Uh, and I think this is the first time I talk about this in public. My friend Andrew Choi, <laughs> mm. which I didn't know back then, uh, was competing in the show. And I, uh, to my eye, he was already a very successful songwriter. Right. But he was also competing with mm. people to sing. And I thought, okay, if that guy has that much courage to jump into such competition like that, why shouldn't I be trying and that gave me a little bit of courage. And that's when I started looking up uh, for potential career options in the sure. music industry. Uh, and A&R, the job A&R popped up on my research. So I thought, OK, this looks like something that I can do. So that's how I dabbled into the field of music a little bit. So you were inspired by this TV show, but still, it was a very brave choice, I would say. Yeah, but I was young. And I think <laughs> being young, like you haven't really done anything so that you are like, you are able to try new things. Indeed. So that's uh, quite inspirational. Then you decided to take this path, but you end up joining SM Entertainment of all places, arguably the top K-pop agency, particularly at the time. You were involved in international A&R, as you said. That sounds like it was a dream start. It was. Um, I actually had um, SM Entertainment in mind when I was applying for positions. And I, uh, when I came back to Korea after my degree, I waited for their uh, job postings and openings and applied to that position. So I would say I was quite lucky in mm. getting that position. Right. So you applied. They had a posting. What was it like to start working there? Um, it was 
It was fantastic. Hmm. Um, it was very demanding. Uh, I can but imagine. I think it was so inspirational and amazing to work with such world-class producers and songwriters. Uh, especially my job, uh, international A and R, it involved a lot. Uh, it involved bringing international songwriters and producers to Korea to collaborate with local producers and songwriters to produce music for our artists. And that process not only uh, allowed me to work with these amazing people, but I also was in the midst of what was going, like all the mm. things that was happening. And I've learned so much. Uh, I was always inspired by the musical choices that they make, the way they work. They're so hardworking. All that was very amazing, but also involved a lot of work <laughs> that uh but it wasn't really forced i feel like i forced myself because i enjoyed watching sure. uh the things like this a song changing throughout the process after my feedback it was so fascinating to witness that so i ended up pushing myself going like staying at work late at night so i would say it was very fun very demanding. You say you saw that position for A&R and you said you felt like it was something you could do. Can you tell us a little bit about what an A&R is for any listeners who might not know? Uh, I know it's short for artists and repertoire, but can you explain a bit more for us? Um, so A&R, in, uh, when, if I were to put it in a sentence, I would say they are the hunters for hit songs. Mm. Uh, so they are the people who talk to the artist, talk to the label to understand what they're looking for to deliver the best possible hit songs that could uh, come across. So A&Rs will reach out to the songwriters and producers uh, to find a good match for their artists, but also try to arrange songwriting sessions for the artists to uh, participate if your artists want to write music themselves. Uh, so and but that's usually the role of an A&R, but in K-pop world, it adds a little bit more to it because A&Rs oversee the entire process of music production. So mm. they not only are the people who hunt for these great songs, but once a song is bought, they will be the ones to make sure the quality is maintained. So they will reach out to lyricists to make sure that the, the song gets the best lyrics possible. I will talk to the engineers and studios to find the right uh, and uh, most suitable studios and engineers for the artist and like all the process of tuning, mixing and mastering until a song is out and delivered to the public and A&R will oversee the entire process. It sounds like a very hands-on uh, kind of work in the industry. It is, yes. And what did it feel when you started working with these artists and getting involved in the music and seeing those songs, as you said, become hits? It's... Um, it's a very, it's an overwhelming feeling. I love the idea of <laughs> sure. being able to create something mm. that delivers so much joy to people's lives. And that's also one of the reasons why I love working in the music industry or join this industry too. Um, like we always have doubts and like not always. We start sometimes with doubts, whether the song will work or not. Mm. And when when you realize that the song actually hits, then you get really 
you feel like your like your work is rewarded, but you also feel like you are contributing to the world a little bit <laughs> in a way. And I sometimes get uh, DMs from the fans like, "Oh, I love this song. Oh, this song has inspired me so much." Or when I was studying for my finals, I was really exhausted and I listened to this song. I get re-energized. Those comments really like keep me going too. Yes, I imagine it must be so energizing, such a, a unique experience. Uh, I understand you continue to work on your own music during that time as well, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you worked with many artists, including Ha Song Un, EXO and SHINee, uh, but also as a singer, uh, songwriter and lyricist, you've composed over 70 songs, is that right? I have. <laughs> I was saying that I was surprised that I've worked on so many songs. I guess I didn't really think about the numbers. I was like working sure. continuously to get to one song and another, and here I am. <laughs> but even working as an A&R, to be writing and creating your own music must have been uh, quite a challenge as well. Uh, I think it's exciting still to be, uh, because those two different jobs require different things, mm. and it's exciting to be able to do both. So then after you left NSM Entertainment, you founded your own company, mm -hmm. uh, Singing Beetle, which we introduced at the start. Can you tell us a bit more about the company and how you decided to branch out and start this uh, new venture? Um, right. Um, Singing Beetle is a company w that tries to create a healthier environment uh, for musicians. Mm. I, As I was working at... Um, in the music industry, I've noticed that so many talented musicians sometimes give up their job or give up their dream mm. because of realistic reasons. And I think it's really easy to forget that music is also somebody's livelihood, especially because it's a product that is not visible, tangible. Mm. Um, so I found this singing beetle in the hopes that we can create a bridge uh, for the upcoming artists and musicians to access different networks or different opportunities to grow their career and eventually bring more great music to the world. So Singing Beetle is a company that not only provides producing services to artists, but also provides uh, publishing services to songwriters and producers. Um. Yeah, so it's it's a company that tries to make more more great music out and encourage more musicians to pursue their path. It sounds like you have some very noble goals, but I imagine it's very challenging as well to run this company like this, especially with having such uh, uh, when you're aspiring to do so much. But I think I was very lucky because I was fortunate enough to work with really talented people. Uh, especially in the beginning phase of um, Singing Beetle. Mm. I've had a lot of help uh, from people that I've got to know through working at SM uh, and before. They were very much willing to help me um, get started, to give me different opportunities, and I would definitely want to return that favor um, to the community so that we can you know, create different bridges and different opportunities for other musicians because I think... I got to um, create songs, deliver these music through not only my own effort, but also with the help. So I would be that help for other people who needs that to do the same. Sure. Can you give us some examples? 
have there been any uh, rewarding or memorable moments so far? I know you've worked with a lot of uh, international artists as well. That's part of your remit for the company, right? Mm-hmm. I do remember that a lot of songwriters that I've worked with all were very supportive of me when I was leaving SM. Mm. Although I was leaving the post, mm. they were very... Um, I wouldn't say happy, but they were very encouraging, supportive, yeah. supportive too. Like, I really want to, like, I'm very curious about what sh- your future would be like. Please let me know if there's anything that they can help. And eventually when I did leave SM, uh, some, like, songwriters and producers, both in and outside of Korea, did reach out to me uh, for... Um, opportunities like oh hey we're trying to launch this new artist and we Mm. need new songs can you help us set up a songwriting camp so that is an opportunity so i'd be like sure so we start that out and little by little i would start building my career uh, as an independent a and r and a songwriter so yeah that will be one of the memorable moments sure so you're building up what's next for you what are some perhaps goals for uh, this year for 2023 uh, so in 2023, uh, Singing Beetle is uh, producing its own artist. Uh, so, so far, we have been mostly providing A&R services to already existing artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this time we have signed a, a new male solo artist. Wow, that sounds exciting. Yes, it is pretty exciting. Uh, so we're working on his uh, single right now uh, to be released in the spring. Uh, so that will be one of the most important projects that I'll be doing because uh, we're planning to launch his two singles and an EP this year. And then hopefully we'll be able to start a tour and build a career for him. Oh, right. And can you give us his name? Can you reveal uh, that yet? Or is that... I can. <laughs> I'll just like, look outside. Make sure, yeah. Uh, so his name is Kim Nano. Kim Nano, okay. Mm-hmm. Yes, he's a male solo. He used to be part of a... Um, k-pop idol group in the past uh, and now he's trying to make his own artist he is a solo artist okay so kim nano you heard it here first well we hope that goes well for you we've been talking to the founder of singing beetle michelle cho thank you very much for your time today thank you did you enjoy this segment you can discover more segments like this throughout the week on korea 24 On Monday, we bring you news from the world of sports around the peninsula. Then on Tuesday, notable guests from various fields join us and give us insight into their lives and work. Are you a fan of books? Then tune in on Wednesday for Korea Book Club, where our book critic helps us unpack works by Korean authors or written on Korea. Go on an adventure with us every Thursday as we take a look at Korea's hidden gems with Explore Korea. And on Friday, listen to what our film critics have to say about the latest movie releases from both home and abroad. We have all that you need, all in one place, on Korea 24. And we finish up with our closing segment, Morning Edition Preview. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now, our staff editor, Richard Larkin. Richard, hello, it's good to see you. Hello, good to see you too. Okay, so where are we headed to first for our first story? First, we'll go to Park Hansol's article in the Entertainment and Arts section of the Korea Times. In yesterday's Morning Edition preview, we talked about two, let's just say, interesting exhibitions. Yes. Well, today we'll carry on with the same theme. This time we have information about Japanese artist Takashi Murakami's exhibition that is being held in Busan. 
Yes, uh, yesterday we went from Hitler to surrealist yes. interpretations of Renaissance art, if I remember correctly. Yes. So what makes this one interesting, like uh, the exhibitions we talked about yesterday? Well, that's because the article describes Takashi Murakami, Murakami Zombie, as a collection of kawaii monsters. Kawaii is the Japanese word for cute. At the Busan Museum of Art, around 160 paintings, sculptures, installations and films are on display. They were made throughout the artist's 30-year career. Okay, so can you tell us about the artist's style and what we might expect? Well, you can see that the artist takes inspiration from Japanese animation and comic books, but there is also a commentary on disasters in Japan's uh, modern history, such as earthquakes or the Fukushima nuclear disaster. The artist himself said that in situations like war or man-made disasters, there's always someone against whom you can hold a grudge. He added that there is no one to blame for natural disasters, though, so people need ways to find comfort. That is why his works are story-based art. Wow, so despite uh, taking inspiration from Japanese animation and kawaii monsters, as you said, some heavy and uh, thought-provoking themes there. Right. I don't think this is an exhibition you would want to take children to, but it does look like a unique display of works for people in the area to see. As I said, Murakami Zombie is being held at the Busan Museum of Art until March 12th. Admission is free. Right, so this exhibition is taking place in Busan. I saw some pictures before we started, and actually some of the installations are quite impressive in scale as well as yes. size. So for those in Busan, it definitely looks like it would be a fun one to check out. OK, let's uh, move on to our next story. What do you have for us? The Sejong Centre for the Performing Arts has revealed all the performances that will take place during its 2023 season. All the details can be found in Park Gaiyang's article in the culture section of the Korea Herald. OK, so can, what can you tell us about the new season? It looks like the centre will be taking a different approach this year compared to previous years. The CEO of the institution, An Ho Sang, said that this year the centre is focusing on providing more quality original works. The 2023 season kicks off on March 15th and ends in December. There will be around 250 performances of 28 works. 12 of them are new productions. It's also worth noting that 23 of the works will be performed by the centre's resident art companies. Right, so some fresh works then. What are some notable performances our listeners should look out for? The highlight is said to be the Munich Philharmonic Concert on November 29th. They will be joined by the pianist Im Yun Chan, someone we have mentioned numerous times on the show for his award wins and success in the past year or two. Mm. Pianist Im Dong Hyuk, Park Jae Hong and Lee Hyuk, who I believe has been on the show before. Yes, he has. Will also perform at the centre in the Sejong Chamber Series from June 12th to the 17th. OK, some big names indeed as well. It looks like the centre has another busy year ahead of them. We'll wrap it up there. Thank you for bringing us those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we're going to bring our show to a close today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon Jangwo, and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio.